0: Hello and welcome to your latest episode of the Proximo Weekly Debrief. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. This week marks the second week of our guest spots, featuring short, themed interviews with key market players designed to give you a bite-sized analysis of sectors within the project finance and infrastructure spaces. For this episode, I spoke to Arabs Jonathan Turton about UK infrastructure development in the wake of COVID-19.
1: So, John, to what extent do you think the UK government's goal of levelling up the UK economy through infrastructure investment is achievable in an economic climate severely damaged by COVID-19?
2: Thanks, Tom. So, I think, first of all, I just want to reflect a little bit on the levelling up agenda as a whole. and sat back and thought about that a little bit. And and, it's important to recognise levelling up isn't new. It's basically a rebranding of the rebalancing the economy. Um, policy that was something that George Osborne and his government colleagues talked about as far back as in sort of 2011, 2012, I believe, and in part that was a response then to the 2008 9 financial crisis. So, this is something that's been around for you know best part of 10 years, really. Um, and it refers to closing the productivity and the prosperity gap between London and the southeast and the rest of the UK. Um, and it really reflects the fact that the UK is quite unusual um, and quite unique in most developed nations, in that almost all of the cities outside of London in the UK have a lower than average productivity level or GVA per head level. And the result of having that kind of unbalanced economy where there's such a centralised focus on London and the South East as the driver of the economy, it's quite, it's quite risky financially and economically, actually. In many senses, it's a little bit like having all your eggs in, in one basket, and that's focus of the economy in that part of the world, and particularly on professional and financial services um, out of London, is one of the reasons the UK was hit harder than many other places during the uh, financial crisis of the So you nine. Know, so a balanced economy across geographies and across sectors is more resilient to economic shocks, regardless of where they come from, whether they come from financial crises or pandemics or, or wherever else. So generally trying to get to a balanced economy across the country is a really important policy. I, I feel that it is a really important thing that we're trying to do there. Now, in terms of delivering that through infrastructure investment, my my view is that whilst infrastructure investment is important, it's not gonna deliver the rebalancing or the leveling up policy outcome on its own. Good infrastructure is an important economic enabler, um, but it's gotta be part of a wider range of initiatives and measures with a focus on things like skills, which are probably more important than the infrastructure part. Um, so I think whilst infrastructure investment is an enabler, it's not the thing on its own right, right that's suddenly going to change the economic prospects of, say, the north of England or other parts of the UK and bring them more into line with London and the Southeast. Um, east sure. this, is, this is probably especially true in a post-Covid world, really, where how we work has potentially changed long-term. Um, We may now need to really stop and reconsider what infrastructure is required to enable economic growth going forward. And it might well be that virtual connectivity takes over from uh, physical connectivity as one of the more seen as the more important measures, uh, important areas of investment. And the one thing that we do know, I suppose, is that at the end of this pandemic, the public finances are going to have taken an almighty hit. With the level of support that the government provided to the economy through what's been a very very difficult time and, and to get out of that that position we'll find ourselves and we will need to drive economic growth and one of the things that is um quite important is that when you're driving growing something or you're growing anything it's usually easier to grow from a lower base than it is to grow from a higher base so, in many senses, the unbalanced nature of the UK economy creates a real opportunity for the government if it gets things right around infrastructure investment, skills, and, and other related initiatives to drive growth in the parts of the country that currently aren't as prosperous as London and the southeast. And the theory goes that those places it ought to be easier to drive growth in because they're at a lower base to start with. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite—I don't think that the um, the impact of the the economic damage that we've seen with COVID-19 really affects the ability of government to level up um, and to to invest in the right places. You know, the whole economy has been hit really hard um, and we just need to rebuild from there as as best we can and really focus on that policy, which I do think is important. Thank you, John. Yeah. And, And
1: do you think that infrastructure investments and project finance in the UK and elsewhere uh, has displayed resilience in the face of the pandemic, or
2: has there been a, a sort of tangible market slowdown, in your view? Thanks, I, th- I think, from infrastructure investment point of view, it kind of depends on which sectors you look at. You know, there's no doubt about the fact that the pandemic has hit certain sectors really hard. You know, obvious ones being transport and hospitality, um, and so you'd expect investment. In those kind of sets and those areas to slow down in the current economic climate. In in a world where risks that you know, 12 months ago, the risks that we saw this 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 year in 2020 were kind of feasible on paper and people might have considered them, but they'd never happened before, so they were never seen as realistic. And suddenly, these kind of risks have become very real in 2020, and the impact they've had on you know for transport assets, passenger revenues and demand when you look at places like bus or, bus or train operators and airports and aviation, um, these risks have been of a, of a level of magnitude that people probably didn't think possible before. Yeah. So you would, you would have thought it really unusual if investment in those kind of sectors had just continued in an unabated way given those market conditions and those market impacts. So so in many sectors, yeah, you know, we've, we've seen a slowdown across, across the year, certainly. There are other sectors, however, that um, have been really, really strong through this period. So, you know, some of the areas we've seen a lot of strength in are areas like logistics, um, where, you know, obviously we're we're all doing our day-to-day shopping and getting our goods in a slightly different way. And there's been an impact on, positive impact in the logistics industries. We see, in particular, um, energy and the renewables markets and fibre, and broadband data centers have all picked up quite a lot of momentum through 2020. So I think, generally, I think infrastructure investment has been fairly resilient, but what you have seen is a shift in emphasis from one type of asset or investment to others, um, which are reflective of the the impact of the pandemic on the economy as a whole. Okay, thank
1: you, that's very interesting. And actually just following on from you talking about a shift in focus uh, according to sector when it comes to infrastructure investment, how in your view has the uk's transport sector been managing through the pandemic you know should and, and additionally should this sector remain a government priority or should its focus be directed elsewhere in this um, age of remote working
2: yeah it's a really really good question thomas And i think at the at, at the moment you know i would start off by saying actually um you know we, there's many many parts of the answer to this that are still unknown and we'll, we'll have to wait and see how people's lives change but i mean transport in the uk generally is pretty commercialized compared with some of our you know developed countries uh, across europe and, and in other parts of the world so if you think about things like our, our our bus and our train services are pretty much fully commercialized and big organizations like tfl where almost all the revenue that they generate or a massive proportion of it comes from those passenger fares. So naturally, these kind of businesses have taken a massive hit over the last you know, nine months or so now. Um, and I do think in many senses, government has done all the right things to prop up the sector and to keep people moving around as best they can, um, where it's been absolutely necessary to do that. And it's very, very difficult. So I'm not, I'm not critical of the way government's approach that at all. I think they've done quite a few positive things. The, the, the longer-term change in our travel patterns is still unknown. So when, when this pandemic is finally under control, it, it's a bit unclear for me at the moment what the new normal will look like for, for many of us. Um, and I think that's a, a theme of a lot of the commentary you see in the market and in the, in the trade press at the moment. You know, there's many commentators that suggest that everything will revert to just how it was. We'll all go back to doing what we used to do. And there are other commentators who think we'll see a much wider longer term change and that we won't go back to working the way we did we've had this huge kind of virtual working experiment for the last nine months and in many senses in many areas we've managed to demonstrate that this this can actually work and can be productive and i think that will that will have a a, a lasting legacy i mean personally i'm I'm in the second camp i don't think that we will just go back to exactly how we were i can't quite see why we would and what the benefits of that would be So it's going to be quite a difficult and rocky road for some of our transport networks, particularly public transport, um, trains, buses, and for aviation as well, I think, as well, because up until this year, passenger demand for most of those services was was really stable and really predictable, and you could manage services and timetables and and capacity around what was very predictable demand, and that, that predictability has pretty much gone away, for the time being at least. We don't know what the new normal will look like, we just know demand will be different, but but, you know, the, you could get all sorts of ranges of forecasts as to when things recover and how and what shape of the curve. Um, there are there, there's many many views, and there's many um, there are many people who can't work remotely in the market. You know, there's there's a lot of ironic chess workers that we've relied on so much through the last nine months and and other key workers. And there are other people in the economy who just don't want to. You know, there are people that don't enjoy working remotely, want to be in that environment, an office, again, the the home environment isn't suitable. So, for those people, you still need the services to enable them to get to their place of work and their employment. Um, What you might see going forward is you might see trains or buses that perhaps used to run at 90 or 95% capacity. They might be running at 50 or 60% capacity going forward. And there's significant financial implications from changes like that where, the revenue that these assets generate, these services generate, falls significantly, but fundamentally the cost of running that service don't, doesn't change. So I think what we'll, we'll see um, a significant shift in how we fund and deliver transport um, in the UK. But I think the challenge with it is that everyone wants to try and predict forward exactly what that looks like before there's any real evidence on how transport demand will recover. Um, and how we'll all behave differently after this as well. So, yeah, I think, I think the government's managed it reasonably well through the pandemic. There are a lot of the right things and services have kept room and, you know, fundamentally people have still been able to get those services and get to and to get to those key, key worker roles um, when they've needed to and we'll need to continue to do that going forward. Um, I do think demand will change significantly, but exactly what that looks like I think is, um, yeah, anybody's guess at the moment, actually. Yes,
1: of course, John, it's a a very interesting perspective on the future, which, as you point out, is quite difficult to predict. Um, But just as a kind of final reflection, I suppose, on uh, this year and uh, project finance and infrastructure investment, are there any particular project finance deals that have closed this year that stand out to you as being especially remarkable or, or notable in any way?
2: I've been thinking long and hard about this this question for the last few days, Thomas, and the honest answer is not really. Okay. <laughs> I really wrap my brains and a look at things and just thought, actually, you know, in many senses, there's nothing remarkable that I've seen that's gone on that I didn't think would or, or could. You've seen the shift in types of deals and things, but actually it's it's in many senses, in many sectors like renewables and energy, it's been pretty much business as usual and in the bigger transport assets, the transactions haven't happened. Right, so
1: you feel that Actually, what might be remarkable here is that in some sectors we've just had sort of business as usual as opposed to, you know,
2: uh, great. Yeah. Industry. Yeah. I think some, some sense is what, what's more remarkable for me is not just the transactions themselves. It's the nature of the way in which everyone shifted. So, you know, we're doing projects with various investors and, and um, lenders and so on where actually the entire teams are working remotely and still getting these deals over the line. And getting these deals signed and I think that's more remarkable than the deal itself. You know, everyone's doing this stuff from God knows where and it's still working.
0: I would like to extend my thanks to Jonathan Turton for sharing his insights with us. Now, as always at Proximo, we have some very exciting content to share with you. First, I would like to mention our upcoming webinar, Lighting the Way in Nordic Onshore Wind in which we have invited a panel of experts to discuss the depth of the Nordic onshore wind market. The webinar goes live on the 12th of November at 3pm UK time. I would also like to draw your attention to our US Power and Renewables Finance Exchange 2020 virtual event, which is taking place from the 17th to the 19th of November. Over three days we will cover this market all the way from distributed generation to distressed assets to spread predictions and with sophisticated built-in networking tools and interactive game show sessions, you are guaranteed to leave with useful new connections for your operations. Please see our website or contact a member of our team for more details. You might also be interested in two features published by Proximo over the last week. Editor Sean Keating's piece, Unfit for Purpose, considers the French government's bid to cut feed-in tariffs awarded to solar projects before 2011. The article is free to view on the Proximo site. Additionally, you might consider my feature on the nascent French offshore wind sector entitled Ocean 6, in which I consider whether or not French offshore wind has successfully broken free from the legal and regulatory challenges that have plagued the sector since its inception. Finally, as always, here is a rundown of some of the top stories brought in by our journalists over the last week. A globetech led team is expected to close a heavily DFI-backed loan to finance its $624 million, 450 megawatt to main gas-fired project in Mozambique in the second quarter of 2021. Funding approval is currently being sought for the $391 million debt package being provided by the US Development Finance Corporation, $200 million, the IFC, $100 million, and the OPEC Fund for International Development, $91 million. The financing may also benefit from a guarantee from fellow World Bank Group member, MIGA. EDM will also be the off-taker of power from Temayn under a long-term PPA, while natural gas will be supplied as fuel under a 25-year tolling agreement from the panned Termane Fields operated by SASOL and state-owned oil and gas company ENH. Bangladesh is out to the AIIB for support for its series of proposed solid waste management PPP projects in selected municipalities in the country. Local Government Engineering Department, under the Ministry of Local Government Rural Development and Cooperatives, is the implementing agency of the Solid Waste Management Programme. The Government has applied for project financing from the AIIB to the tune of $500 million, as well as consultancy services, to prepare and design the programme. The four potential components of the integrated solid waste management improvement programme comprise waste collection and transportation, waste processing and disposal systems, project management and supervision support and policy support and capacity building. The £5.5 billion project financing of SSE and Equinor's Dogger Bank A and Dogger Bank B offshore wind farms off the coast of the UK is nearing signing. Sources with knowledge of the deal confirm that documentation is almost complete, and that signing and financial close are likely to take place by the end of November. The financing comprises a £1.5 billion loan from three ECAs, including BPI France, EKN, and GIEK, and around £4 billion of commercial bank debt. BNP Paribas is financial advisor, while Linklaters is legal advisor to the sponsors, and Norton Rose Fulbright is providing lender counsel. A source indicates that the project debt carries a tenor that matches the project's construction period of three to four years, as well as their 15-year contracts for difference, giving the debt a tenor of around 19 years door-to-door. Pricing guidance on the loans is reported to be around 190 basis points over LIBOR. The financing also features a £450 million equity component, equivalent to a 20% stake in the project. IFM Investors, Mazda and Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Have reportedly placed bids. A source notes that the project's low strike prices made the sale of an equity stake of this size fairly necessary, as additional project debt was not considered viable to finance the project. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more of your latest project finance news from Proximo.